first of all, to say this is a threefold pleasure um, to learn with you this evening. First of all, in the presence of so many um, teachers and family and, and friends. Um, secondly, um, at Drisha, which was a pioneering institution when it was founded, and it's one of those very rare institutions that remains pioneering. Um, as years go by, it remains really at the forefront of what's important. And finally, of course, to, to learn um, in memory of uh, Mr. Rudolf Olava Shalom. And uh, it's really a pleasure to, to be here with you um, to, to do that learning. One of the uh, great treats of um, serving at Kirath Jeshurun has been um, to get to know um, your family and your extended family. And it's really a tremendous pleasure to be here. Um, the, uh, the subject for today is, of course, a topical one. We're in the closing hour now of the fast of Gedalia. And I wanted just to focus on some aspects of the fast, um, especially the historical background to it and why perhaps it has such an important role to play in our tradition. Um, hopefully, everyone can at least see a source sheet. Um, if, you, if, you, if you're not actually holding one, hopefully you'll be able to look over someone's shoulder and more um, are coming in due course. So we'll begin with the opening source here, which is from the prophet Zechariah. And Zechariah was one of the great prophets of return. So we are here today um, fasting because of an event that happened just in the aftermath of the destruction of the first temple and of Jerusalem and the Babylonian conquest um, of Judea. Um, some years later, de some decades later, um, Jews started coming back into Judea and one of the great prophets of that return was the prophet Zechariah. And he mentions our fast day um, in the first source. I'm going to read it for you. So says the Lord of hosts, the fast of the fourth and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be for the house of Judah for joy and gladness and for good gatherings or for uh, festive occasions. So love, truth, and peace. Now the prophet Zechariah here mentions how many fast days? Four. And they're identified by numbers, each number, of course, referring to a month. Now, the months of the Jewish calendar, although the year, um, by our tradition, starts in Tishrei, the months always start from Nisan. So Nisan is the first month. So let's see if we can identify these. The fast of the fourth month is Nisan Iyar Sivan Tammuz, so that's the 17th of Tammuz. The fast of the fifth is Tisha B'Av, excellent. The fast of the seventh is is this month the fast that we're, we're um, fasting today. And the fast of the 10th month is the 10th of Tevet, precisely. Now, all of those fasts have in one way or another to do with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the first temple. Now, if I could ask you, of those four fasts, which all have to do with the destruction of the temple, if I could ask you to, to point out the one that you think is the most serious, the most significant, the one that weighs most heavily upon us, which of those four fasts would you say it should be? Tisha B'Av, okay. Which is the fast of the fifth month, okay, in Zachary's terminology. I agree. Now, if I could ask you a slightly harder, but maybe not so, not so difficult a question, if I could ask you for the second one down, one that you may pair with Tisha B'Av, if not as serious, if not as grievous a, a, a moment, at least something that, that could respectably be, be paired with Tisha B'Av, which fast would you say? Shabbat absolutely. Which, after all, is the first day of the three-week period, which ends with Tisha B'Av. 
And that's, I'm sure, what you know, any educated Jew would say. But let's carry on with a different prophecy of Zechariah, the second source. Um, it was asked of the priests in the house of the Lord and, and of the, uh, that was my mistake, and of, should read, of the prophets saying. In other words, this question came in the generation of Zechariah. Now, just to, again, to reiterate the context here, we're talking here about a generation who is returning to Israel, okay? Essentially returning to Zion and rebuilding a Jewish community after a great destruction, which was decades earlier, okay? So most of the people returning don't personally remember this destruction, and what they are, what, what's on their minds now is the rebuilding of the Jewish community in the land of Israel. And they come to Zechariah with a question which actually is not foreign to us here in the room today. The question was, shall I still fast in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done all these years? The fifth month is which fast again? Tisha B'Av. So what they're essentially asking is, is what? Let me ask you, what, what's the question that's being asked? So, one second. What, what did you say? Precisely. And, and it's a question, like I said, that's not... I mean, this Tisha B'Av, somebody asked me exactly that question. Tisha B'Av is, is uh, remembering the destruction of Jerusalem, the end of Jewish sovereignty over the land of Israel, um, the death of Jews, the lack of uh, political control. Now we're back. Not only do we have Jerusalem, we have the land of Israel, we have the state of Israel, we have um, Jewish sovereignty in the land. Um, Jerusalem is not desolate. Jerusalem is thriving. I mean, I just spent three weeks there over the summer. So a question that could easily be asked is, should we fast on Tisha B'Av? Now, Zachariah's answer is very interesting. We'll start looking at it now, and I'm actually going to finish today's Shi'ur with the uh, continuation of this, of this prophecy. But Zachariah's um, answer is very interesting, particularly for our purposes. Note again, the question is, do we still need to fast on which fast day? Tisha B'Av, the fast of the fifth month. And Zachariah continues... The word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Speak unto all of the people of the land and to the priests, saying, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh month, these seventy years, did you fast unto me, even to me? That's you know, an archaic translation. What it really means is, when you were fasting on these fast days for these past seventy years, when you were mourning the destruction, God is saying, were you doing it just for me? Or was there some meaning behind the fasting that you were doing. And we'll return to that in a second. But what I want to focus on now is, although Zachariah was asked about should the people continue to fast on Tisha B'Av, he answers referring to which two fasts? Tisha B'Av and the fast of the seventh month, which is Tzom Gedalia. It seems very likely then that at least in the mind of Zachariah, Tisha B'Av and Tzom Gedalia are somehow linked, comparable, at least thematically, um, in some kind of way. He doesn't mention Shiva Asabatamos, he doesn't mention Asabateva at all. I think probably motivated by, by this theme in the book of Zechariah, the rabbis in, in Rosh Hashanah, while talking about all the different fast days in the year, discuss, um, point out that Tzom Gedalia has a is different from the other fast days. The other fast days that we've described talk about the beginning of the siege against Jerusalem, the breaching of the walls of Jerusalem, the destruction of Jerusalem, and so on. Tzom Gedalia, as we'll see, commemorates not the destruction of Jerusalem or the siege or anything to do with Jerusalem, but actually the death 
of not thousands of Jews on the streets of a deserted Jerusalem, but the death of one particular individual. And I think the rabbis are motivated by the, the verse that we just read in Zechariah, and also motivated by the question of how could the death of one person, however important, really weigh up against all of the terrible catastrophe that occurred at the destruction of the first temple, the rabbis in Rosh Hashanah 18b say, this, the, the, the inclusion of Tzom Gedalia in this list is that the death, the deaths of the righteous is somehow weighed up, in other words, is, is equal in gravity to the burning of the house of our God. Um, I go as far as to say that the deaths of the righteous is um, incomparably more catastrophic than the burning of any building, even if it is the Beit HaMikdash. In other words, both for the prophet Zechariah and for Chazal, the death of Gedaliah absolutely is, um, makes a lot of sense that it's in this list. So that's kind of by way of introduction. We now need to ask ourselves why, what was so significant about the death of this particular person, Gedalia ben Achikam. Talking about the fast of Gedalia, Maimonides, in the final source on the first page there, says that we fast on the third of Tishrei because it was on that day that Gedalia ben Achikam was killed and, that's not all, and the ember of the remnant of Israel was extinguished and their exile was dispersed. Now, the he uses this very beautiful poetic phrase here, the ember of the remnant was extinguished. What's an ember? I mean, someone just, in your own words, tell me what an ember is. It's a dying, right. So you can have a fire, a burning fire. It's a real gazunta fire. You can warm your hands on it. Um, you can cook with it. It's a real fire. The fire, anyone who's been camping knows that the fire eventually dies down and you're left with embers, sort of lightly glowing coals or lightly glowing pieces of wood. It's not particularly hot and it's nowhere near as uh, impressive as the fire that was once there, but at least it's there. At least it's there. And if you exactly. And if you really try hard, then it can it it can be, exactly, it can be brought back to, exa exactly, precisely. It's not as good as it once was, but it's still there, and it can, with a bit of encouragement, be brought back, with a bit of more fuel, be brought back to a really roaring blaze again. I'm sorry? Yes, it has all the potential to be a, a great roaring fire once again. And I don't think it's a, mis a, a coincidence that Rambam uses this very beautiful poetic metaphor, because essentially the death of Gedalia ben Achikam was precisely that. There was, if you like, a roaring fire, a very vibrant, exciting um, life of, um, of Jewish government in Jerusalem. The temple was there. The, the um, lineage of David were on the throne. And because of the conquests of the, uh, of, of, um, the Babylonian armies, that was all swept away. The, house, uh, the, the king's palaces, the temple was destroyed. People were killed. Jerusalem was bereft. But th even despite that, as we'll see, there was an ember remaining. The fast of Gedalia, and we'll see in detail the, in, in the history how this happened, the fast of Gedalia was the moment when that ember was put out completely. And that is the significance and the gravity 
of the day and what we're remembering as we fast. Please turn... Oh, actually, before we do that, just, uh, just have a look at the, this very beautiful symbol at the top of the page. Can anybody make out what that might be at the top of the first page? It's an archaeological find from the year 1935 in the site of Lachish. Anyone know what that... Can anyone identify it? It's, uh, it's a seal, as in, um, you know, a royal... Like a signet ring, to seal a letter... And the, the script there is, is in ancient Hebrew script. It's in uh, a Phoenician or pa- Paleo-Hebrew script. And what it says is, for those of you who are not totally up to snuff with your uh, Paleo-Hebrew, the top line, it reads from right to left, the top line, the, this, this, this is the actual picture of the seal. This side is a kind of um, imprint so you can read the, the letters better. The top line says, Gedaliahu. So this is an original seal, probably of Gedaliah, the man we're talking about today. And underneath it, it says the words, Asher al-Habayit. Literally meaning, who is over the house. Now before we even open um, the book of Kings and the book of Yirmiyahu that we're going to be looking at, can anybody thinking back to Breshit, any uh, particular children of uh, Jacob, Remember that phrase, Asher al-Habayit, or something similar. G- great. So he, 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 he was, but, and in particular, when, when Joseph um, interprets the dreams of Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is duly impressed, he says to Yosef, Atatihia al-Baisi. He says a lot of things, but he says, Atatihia al-Baisi, same phrase, you will be over my house. Now, what is, so just before we even get into this, the, the, the sources, what does that mean then to be over, based on this archaeological find alone, what does it mean to be over, over the house? Uh, uh, definitely a ruler, but a king, you know, in your own right? Or, so, right, so just like Joseph was not the king of Egypt, the king of Egypt was unambiguously Pharaoh, but he was essentially the governor of all the affairs of state. And so, as we'll see, Gedaliah was not the king of Israel or the king of Judea, but he was appointed as the governor of Judea by the Babylonian government. That was his, that was his role. Executive, <laughs> executive director. Executive director. I... I, I I know that there's at least, there's probably a number of executive directors and presidents in the room. So I'm going to just, I'll let them discuss whether whether uh, that's an appropriate um, uh, metaphor. Anyway, let's let's now get, get, um, get to the second page of the sources. There are two principal accounts of the story of Gedaliah in, in Tanakh. The first one is at the top of page two. And it's a count from the end of the second book of Malachim, the second book of Kings. And I'm, I'm going to ask somebody who um, thinks they have a, a loud voice or, or, or somebody who's going to make the mistake of making eye contact with me. Would you, know, would you, would you please? We're gonna, yes, we're going to be sticking mainly to, to, to English, but the Hebrew is here for reference. Please, please go ahead. Yes.
one second. Um, so first of all, we're already seeing um, the, the, um, the context here, which is this is already after um, Nebuchadnezzar has conquered Judea, and, and uh, probably it's after, or it's certainly around the time that he's destroyed um, Jerusalem. He, he appoints who as governor? Who, how is he called in this verse? Gedaliah, the son of Achikam, the son of Shaphan. Now, it's very common in the Bible for people to be given names that based on you know, their own name and then son of or daughter of, normally son of, um, their father. What's interesting about this verse? You have a grandfather. Now, it's not unknown for this to happen. It's not, you know, this isn't the only time that it occurs. But it is unusual enough for it to bear noting. And we'll come back to Gedalia's genealogy in a second because it explains a lot about him and where he was coming from and also about why he was appointed to this position. Please carry on with the reading. Yes. <laughs> okay, so I'm just going to, I'll be pausing you a lot. I hope it's okay. Um, where is Gedalia based? Mitzpah. Now, why not Jerusalem? Because it's Jerusalem's destroyed. It's lying absolutely devastated at this point. So Gedalia has a kind of new um, throat, a new, a new seat of government, which is in Mitzpah, which is just north of Jerusalem. Um, there's a, right, and there's a lot, I mean, Mitzpah comes up a lot in, in, it's in the land of Binyamin, there's a lot of stuff that, that's, you know, prece- preceding this point in the, in the prophets, and the Mitzpah is known for, um, and it's possible, even probable, that the reason Mitzpah is still standing is because the people of Mitzpah may have done a deal with um, the Babylonians even before this point. It didn't need to be destroyed or, um, or burnt down as Jerusalem was. Um, by the way, just when I say that they did a deal with the Babylonians, with the invading Babylonians, does that, arise, does that give you a good feeling or a bad feeling about them? doesn't seem so good. They did a deal with the invading Babylonians, right? Well, we'll see in a second when we get, precisely, when we get to the book of, of Yirmiyahu that actually this is something that Jeremiah was insisting not only could happen but should, must happen. That, they, that the Babylonian Empire was a... Was a um, was a, an instrument of God to punish the Jews and they had to accom- make accommodations to the Babylonian empires or they'd be wiped out, as indeed many were. Please carry on. The Chaldeans is, an, is just another way of calling the Babylonians. Okay. Okay. Carry, carry on. Okay, so, so to, just to recapitulate in, in, in our own words, Gedalia was in Mitzpah, the seat of his government, his, of his kind of puppet government, um, but this gentleman, Yishmael ben Netanya, 
who was of royal seed. What does it mean of royal seed? He was, he was descended from, from King David, right? Who was not descended from King David, by the way? Gedalia. He, he was not of royal seed. So maybe this, the, the author here is telling us something about the, um, about the motivations of Ishmael, but we'll see more of, 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 in a second about his motivations. He came and he killed Gedalia. Now, why did he do so? We've already seen, perhaps because he was of royal seed, and maybe he was shocked and upset that now the, the governor of Judea was no longer of the seed of David, as it had been for generations, and instead it was a puppet governor put there by an invading empire. Um, perhaps he had other motivations, but for one reason or another, he killed um, Gedalia and the men with him, and the people who were left with Gedalia ran away where to? To Egypt. Now, the reason they ran away to Egypt, in short, is that, as, as you know, the, um, I mean, the current day state of Israel, and, and certainly in the time that we're talking about, was between, between two great empires, and was for many, many centuries, between the empires towards the south of Egypt and towards the north and east of Assyria, then Babylonia, then Persia. Same kind of, kind of thing. And these two empires were warring each other for centuries. So if they were, they were worried, the Jews left in um, Mitzpah, because they, all they knew was that they, they were worried that the Babylonians would see that their own governor that they had put there had been killed by Jews and could quite reasonably think that this was an uprising of the Jews against the Babylonians. So where do you go to? Where's the safest place to go? To go to the enormous empire that's opposing um, um, Babylonia in any case, and that's, that's where they fled. Good. Now this is more or less the entire account that's given in the book of Kings. Now just skip ahead now to, to page 3. That was the account in Kings... See in, in page 3 where it says the account in Jeremiah. Now, that continues all the way down page 3 and page 4 and to the top of page 5. So, I'll ask you an easy question. Which one is longer? Okay, that's the easy question. Obviously, the account in Jeremiah is very, very significantly longer. Why? That's the harder question. It seems that for some reason... Jeremiah had a personal investment in this whole affair and not only a personal investment in the whole affair but as I'm going to show you in a second with Gedalia himself and apart from which Yumiyahu, Jeremiah the prophet was a personal eyewitness to everything that we just read about in the book of Kings so he writes about this from his own personal perspective and it's no wonder that he writes uh, so extensively about it let me just take a couple of minutes to suggest to you why it is that Yirmiyahu is so interested in this and also to have a little think about why it is that Gedalia ben Achikam was appointed in the first place. I mentioned just a second ago as a tangent, but now I'll return to it. Jeremiah was a prophet for many, 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 many years. And he was, for all of those years, extremely unpopular extremely unpopular. Now, this was because he was a prophet in the days of the final kings of Yehuda, the final kings of, of the kingdom of Judah, who were under constant pressure from the empires 
approaching from the north and the east, which is the Babylonian Empire, and to some degree from the um, Empire Egypt approaching from the south and the west. Constantly under pressure, especially from the Babylonian Empire. And not only were they under pressure, but they were constantly trying, understandably, to defend themselves, to stave off invasion, to stave off conquest, to retain political sovereignty. In that climate, Yirmiyahu bore the message of God, which said, it didn't say, go Jews, you can do it, you can stave off invasion, God's on your side. What did it say? The message from God was, you're finished. Because of the sins, your own sins and the sins of your ancestors, you've basically got no more chances to stave off this invasion anymore. The Babylonian Empire is a weapon in the hands of God who will punish you for your sins. In due course, you will be able to return to the land and rebuild and so on. This won't last forever. But as of now, you will be entirely, uh, it will be entirely fruitless and very dangerous for you to attempt to resist the onslaught of the Babylonians. Now, imagine, just imagine today, um, in the United States, luckily we have a free press, but even here, you can imagine, you know, the United States is at war, you can imagine somebody getting up and saying, we shouldn't be at war, our enemies will destroy us. So in the United States, with a free press and a free government, it makes you feel maybe a little uncomfortable. In a place where, let's say, Soviet Russia, if somebody did that, they would almost certainly be put in prison as a political dissident for sowing dissent among the common populace, for being defeatist, and for going against the official policy of the government. And that's precisely what happened to Yumiyahu. Jeremiah was for years and years and years imprisoned in one prison, then in another prison, then he was rescued, then he was put in a prison again. He basically spent almost his entire time in captivity until... When the Babylonian invasion was finally concluded, he was freed by whom? By the Babylonians, who knew that he had been preaching this message. Now, whether or not the Bab- Jeremiah was preaching the message because he, he had received prophecy from God, not, not because of any kind of political arrangement he was interested in. But nonetheless, the Babylonians recognized him as a potential ally. Now, that's Jeremiah's message. Now, let's remember that Gedaliah was described as Gedaliah ben Achikam ben Shaphan. Okay, we had those, his father and then his grandfather. Let's just have a little look about who these people were. I'm going to go through this very, very briefly. I may not read everything inside here because, of the, because time is, is short. Um, on page two, where it says Gedaliah and Jeremiah, the background, please refer to these sources and actually, even better, sit down with the Tanakh and look at the original like, full chapters um, in, your, in your own time. The first source goes back to the reign of uh, King Yoshiahu, King Josiah. Um, King Yoshiahu was remembered for his extremely important reforms, his legal reforms, that were triggered off by the finding of a Sefer HaTorah, a, a book of the law in the temple precinct when they were doing renovations, which you know, m- many assume was a, the book of Devarim, which um, the king found and he tore his garments because he realized that they, the Jews hadn't been living up to the blessings and curses that we read um, in Shul just a few weeks ago. And he went through all kinds of legal reforms. If you look here, um, the person to whom this book was delivered and the person that bore it to the king was none other than Shaphan, who was Gedaliah's grandfather. Shaphan then was a kind of um, courtier and uh, an important member 
of the um, Judean political scene. The second source here describes one of the many times that Yirmiyahu was imprisoned and nearly put to death, except that he was rescued because he was in the hands of Achikam, Gedaliah's father. Achikam, who is the son of Shaphan, okay, so this, the whole family is an important political family, had some kind of understanding with an affinity with the prophet Yirmiyahu and saved him from death. A third source, in Yirmiyahu chapter 36, at the bottom of page 2, this is one of the times that Yirmiyahu is in prison and he is visited by God and given a prophecy and told by God to spread this prophecy around. He dictates the prophecy to his scribe, Baruch Ben-Neria. But Yirmiyahu can't personally go and spread the prophecy. Why can't, can he not? Because he's in jail. He's in prison. He can't. So he tells Baruch to go and read this to the people. And where does Baruch choose to do this? In verse 10 at the bottom of page 2. He read the book of Yirmiyahu's prophecy in the house of Gamariah, the son of Shaphan. So this is Shaphan's, one of Shaphan's other sons. So Shaphan's son is Achikam and also Gamariah. Okay, this, uh, this, this Gamaria is Gedaliah's uncle, right? So we see that the, this entire family was, first of all, an important political family. Secondly, a family that appreciated Yirmiyahu and his prophecies. And thirdly, therefore, a family that because they had an affinity with Yirmiyahu were probably also a family of political heft who would have pushed for making some kind of um, accommodations with the invading Babylonians because that's exactly what Yirmiyahu uh, was, was telling the people to do. And in fact, if you'll just turn to the top of page 3, the second source there, Rashi, in talking about why Gedaliah was appointed as governor, says Gedaliah was somebody who had surrendered to the Babylonians on the advice of Jeremiah. So when the city Jerusalem was captured, the Babylonians appointed him over those who remained there. And this isn't said anywhere explicitly in the text, but Rashi, reading the same passages and others that, that we've just read and others besides, recognizes that firstly, Gedaliah is someone with an affinity to Yirmiyahu, and secondly, therefore, somebody who is be ready to do a deal with the Babylonians. And Rashi actually suggests that maybe Gedaliah, during the fighting over Jerusalem, had actually fled Jerusalem to the Babylonians and said, look, I'm from an important political family, I believe that we should make a, um, that we should surrender to you. Not everybody agrees with it, but I'm here for, you know, when you need me. And indeed, when Jerusalem was finally conquered, it was Gedaliah who was appointed as the, the governor. That's the background to it. And that explains, perhaps, why the sources that we're about to read now from the book of Yemiyahu are so much longer, so much more involved. Clearly, the prophet, apart from being a first... Um, um, a first, um, like an eyewitness to the whole thing, a first-hand witness, was also somebody who had a deep investment in the political family of Gedalia and also the political um, strategy and policy that, that he wanted to uh, follow. Okay. Everybody okay so far? All makes sense. Okay. Now, I've reproduced here not even all of the story as it's told in the book of Yirmiyahu. Um, and we certainly don't have time to go through the whole thing. But I'll go through now just to highlight one or two of the salient differences, the additions that we have in, um, in, in the book of Yumiahu over the account in the book of Kings. Um, we start in verse 7 um, of the 40th chapter of Yumiahu. Um, and, and through verses 7, 8, and 9, 
and 10. And it's really a, a repeat of what happened in the book of Kings. Let's start with verse 11 there on page 3. Likewise, when all the Jews that were in Moab, Moab and among, all the children, among the children of Ammon and in Edom, and that were in all the countries, heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant of Judah, and that he had set over them Gedaliah the son of Achikam, the son of Shaphan, then all the Jews returned out of all places whither they were driven, and came to the land of Yehuda to, to Gedaliah to Mitzpah, and gathered wine and summer fruits in great abundance. Now, this is not a detail that's mentioned in the book of Kings. But we see here that when Gedaliah was appointed, this is in the aftermath of a very long um, period of war. The Babylonians against the, um, the resistance, the Judean resistance. The Babylonians have finally succeeded. Now what happened to all the Jews who were, who were in Judea beforehand? Some of them fought and were killed. Some of them somehow miraculously escaped. But a significant number fled to surrounding countries. Ammon, Moab, other countries as well. And when they hear that the war is over, that we have a Jewish governor in the land of Judea, okay, it's not from the seed of David, yes, Jerusalem's destroyed, but at least things have settled down a little bit, they start coming back. And getting back to the metaphor of the ember that we discussed before, you can see how Gedaliah's presence as a kind of, like a hand on the till, a tiller, you know, he, somebody who's in control, a Jewish leader, somebody who's encouraging people to, to um, put down roots again, to start rebuilding a fabric of society, this actually meant that a lot of Jews returned back to the land. Which, of course, makes it all the more devastating when, in turn, Gedaliah is assassinated and all those Jews who have come back are now you know, left leaderless and distraught once again. I'll carry on. Verse 13. Yochanan the son of Kareach and all the captains of the forces that were in the fields came to Gedaliah to Mitzpah. And he said to him, Did you know that Baalis, the king of the children of Ammon, has sent Yishmael the son of Netanyah to take your life? Now this is an interesting um, development, isn't it? We have here one of the um, generals of the Judean army who had come to Gedaliah to support him and told him something that foreshadows what's about to happen, that Yishmael ben Netanya is coming to assassinate him. But what's the extra piece of information that we didn't have before? That he's being put up to this by the king of Ammon. What interest does the king of Ammon have in killing Gedaliah? Where is Ammon, first of all? Ammon is um, just east of the Jordan, in current day, the current day Jordan, the country of Jordan today. Now, the king of Ammon has been watching with great interest the developments, the geopolitical developments in, in the land of Israel over the previous years. And he's been seeing the Judeans rebelling and resisting the Babylonian conquest until finally the Babylonians have destroyed them all. And put up this puppet governor in, 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 you know, to rule in the, um, as an agent of the Babylonians. Now, what the king, what's the king of Ammon maybe thinking? What opportunity does this present for him? He shares a border with the land of Judea. If he can somehow foment political unrest in Judea at this time of great, great catastrophe, maybe he can just, if not take over the whole place, maybe he can just edge his borders a little bit westwards, take over a little bit. So we see that Yishmael, sure his motivation was, I'm sure he was either jealous or shocked or revolted that the Jew who was on the throne, so to speak, of the land was not of the seed of David as he was. 
but even more so we see now that he was put up to it and in alliance with a foreign government himself. Let's so Gedali is actually um, told about this by one of the other men. Now, I, um, we, okay. Yochanan then says in verse 15, he spoke to Gedali secretly. Let me go, I pray thee, and I will kill Yishmael, the son of Netanya. No one needs to know about it. Let's just keep it secret. We'll send in a spy and get rid of him before he assassinates you. But, turning over, ver, um, page 4, verse 16, Gedaliah, then, the son of Achikam, said to Yochanan, the son of Karech, you shall not do this thing, for you speak falsely of Yishmael. He wouldn't believe him. He thought that he himself maybe was trying to maneuver for some kind of political position. Okay. And then the assassination occurs, that we already know how it happened. And in verses 1, 2, um, 4, the, the assassination is described. By the way, on page 4, verse 1 there, what date precisely was Gedalia killed? Well, it's, what does it say? Okay, so it says, it says it happened in the seventh month, so in the month of Tishri. Now, we obviously, there's, there's, a, there's a debate among, um, in the Jewish tradition, also in, uh, among academics as it happens, precisely what date of the month this happened. It doesn't say anywhere in Tanakh what date it was. Um, and some say it was on the third of Tishrei. That's why we fast on the third of Tishrei. We have this tradition that it happened on the third of Tishrei. We know it because of tradition. And that's entirely possible. It's also possible that seeing as no date is mentioned, when it says it came to pass on the seventh month, what it means is when the seventh month began. In other words, on the first day of the seventh month, the first of Tishrei, which raises the question, why don't we fast on the first of Tishrei? Because it's Rosh Hashanah. So it's entirely possible that Gedali was actually assassinated on Rosh Hashanah itself. And the reason we don't commemorate it on that day is because, of course, we cannot fast on, on, on Rosh Hashanah because it's Rosh Hashanah. So it's put, o- put off until the day after Rosh Hashanah, which is the third of Tishrei. Yeah. Right. Right. I, I absolutely agree. It's, a, it's, it's, it's actually horrifying. It's actually horrifying. It's, po- it's possible. It's possible. I mean, I, 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 I mean, I, it, it's, it's possible. I, it, there's no indication of it, but it is possible. And we indeed see in the next um, in the next section that people are coming to Mitzpah with some kind of offering, and it could be that they're coming because of because of Rosh Hashanah or because they want to offer something in the temple, which they then find isn't standing anymore. Now, let me read this to you. These people, actually, let me, let me summarize. These people come to, they're coming with a sacrifice. They, they think they're going to go to Jerusalem and sacrifice. They find the, the temple is destroyed. They then put on mourning clothes and they go to Mitzpah. Yishmael comes out to meet them and says to them, let's go and meet Gedaliah ben Achikam, who he just murdered. No one knows it yet. Now, why is he saying this? He's saying this probably because he's testing the waters. If they say, we don't want anything to do with Gedali ben Achikam, then maybe he can bring them over to his side. If they say, oh, at least Gedali is in charge, then he knows that he's not going to make an alliance with these people. And indeed, they don't say anything. They seem perfectly happy to go to Gedali ben Achikam, and he kills them all. 
Okay? He kills this group of 80 men, only 10 left. And where does he put the bodies? Look on page 4, verse 9. The pit, it's, it's actually horrible. The, the, we're about to read a description of a mass grave of a group of Jews who were slaughtered by other Jews who were thrown in a pit as a mass grave. The pit where Yishmael cast all the dead bodies of the men who he had slain by the side of Gedaliah was that which Asa the king, this is an, a previous king of Judah, had made for fear of Basa the king of Israel. That same pit Yishmael the son of Netanya filled with them that were slain. Just a brief tangent about this. Why would the text go out of its way to tell us where, where you put the bodies or what the pit had been historically? I don't know. I don't know. Um, you, have, you have a suggestion? I think, I, th- I, 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 I was going to say something along basically the same lines. Um, um, this, this pit had been built maybe as a moat or maybe um, to store um, provisions just in case there was going to be a siege. This moat had been built or pit had been built um, at a time of discord between the, the kingdom of Jude, Judah and the kingdom of Israel. Um, and it's that same pit that is now filled literally now. Then it was filled maybe metaphorically with the, you know, with the bodies to come of these wars, but now it's filled literally, literally with bodies of Jews who have been slaughtered by other Jews. Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to not read the, the rest of the, of the um, extract here from the book of Yimiyahu, but I strongly encourage you to go to it and don't stop where the source sheet stops. Continue to see what happens with uh, the descent into Egypt and so on. But I do hope that the, this brief excursus that we've done has demonstrated that the fast of Gedaliah um, is rightly paired with Tisha B'Av because just like Rambam said, it was the end of the embers that were, that, were, that were left. This was a moment which could have been a turning point. This was a moment that could have been, according to the prophecies of Jeremiah, the end of the destruction and the death that was brought about by the um, kingdom of Babylonia, sort of by the hand of God through Nebuchadnezzar and his troops. This could have been a turning point. Gedaliah could have been the start of something new and, and, uh, and wonderful. And it indeed seemed that it could have been that way until a Jew, because of motivations of either just misreading the situation, of jealousy, of um, alliances with foreign governments who um, sought the opposite of the interests of Israel for one reason or another, arose and killed the leader of the Jewish people at that time. Now, it's no surprise that with the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, many, many references were made to the fast of Gedalia because there again, a Jew arose and murdered um, a Jewish leader. And in fact, Tzom Gedalia was uh, the, the site um, of prayers that were, you know, on Tzom Gedalia, prayers were said at the um, location where Rabin was assassinated for some time. It may still be going on. I don't know if anybody knows if that, if that continues to this day. But in reference to the question that we began the Shi'or with, and the question that was asked of Zechariah, should we continue observing this fast of Tisha B'Av? And should we continue observing this fast of Tzom Gedalia? And I think that although we do have sovereignty in our, in our land, and that's a tremendous, tremendous, tremendous thing, the lessons of the 
history that we've just read today have perhaps not, tragically, not been fully learned. And it's incredibly important to bear this in mind. First is we go into the period of Teshuvah that we're in. And especially as all kinds of discussions are going on in the state of Israel today, um, whatever the right answer is, I, I, I know I have no idea, but even putting aside what the right political stance to take is, conversations have to be conducted um, with civility and with dignity. And we can't ever get even close to the events that were described here, or God forbid, I don't want to say, the, the events that, were, that, that occurred just a few years ago with, with the, uh, the death of Yitzhak Rabin. I want to finish with the words of Zachariah when he was asked that question. Should we continue observing Tisha B'Av? This is one of the, you know, one of the best psukim in Tanakh. Um, should we continue observing Tisha B'Av? Well, the, the, the voice of the, the, the um, prophecy comes to, the word of the Lord comes to Zachariah and says, listen, if you were observing Tisha B'Av because you were going through some kind of rote fasting or you, know, you were doing it because everyone else was doing it, then you, know, you may as well stop fasting now. But otherwise, carry on fasting until So says the Lord of hosts. Execute true judgment, show loyal love and mercy, each person, to everyone else. Do not oppress the widow, the orphan, the stranger, or the poor. In other words, look out for every vulnerable person in our community. Let none of you plan evil things or bad things against anybody else. And as we fast and Tzongedali and continue to do so, these words of Zechariah are words that we should bear very much in mind. Is the time? Of it, I, I want to. Yeah, it's because of this. Okay. Um, just in terms of logistics, we have to reconfigure, because we had such a great crowd, we have to reconfigure the room so we can zav and mariv and break our fast. So um, we'll take questions for just a couple of minutes, and then if each of you just turn your chair to face east, and then we'll put the mechitza back up down the middle there, and we'll have women on near the window and men on this side and we'll daven mariv and then we can all break our fast. Um, it's not a huge space. I hope we have enough food for everybody but please kind of be patient and everybody will have something. And would you give me a wave when it's time to... Uh, yeah. Okay, what... That's, the question was: The question was, isn't it interesting that Chazal called Gedalia Tzadik? 
in the sense that the, the death of, a, of the righteous is somehow um, weighted equally to the burning of, of the temple. And I think, I, I mean, especially given the final source, which I'll leave people to read, it is interesting in a sense. I think probably it's, uh, it's a turn of phrase that Chazal is using here whilst trying to figure out how come it is that the death of Gedalia is listed with these other great catastrophes. Um, although, of course, the reason that they're getting at, the underlying reason, is what we've talked about today, that this wasn't just the death of one person, but you know, all that that represented as well. But I take the point, yeah. Yeah, the question was, is there any clue why he disbelieved the messenger? I think, um, I, I think there is a clue. I think that if we read carefully the sources that we looked at today, we will see that the assassin, Yishmael, was a master uh, manipulator, master deceiver. Um, when the men, you know, the, the group that I told you that he slaughtered and threw into a pit, he's just assassinated Gedalia, and, he, and it says here, Yishmael ben Netanya comes out of Mitzvah to meet them, weeping all along as he went, and he met them. Now, why is he weeping? He's not weeping because he killed Gedalia. They don't know that. And he's actually withholding that information. He's weeping because he's putting on a pretend weeping. Oh, the temple's been destroyed. This is so terrible. I like, they're all in mourning garb. So he's saying to them, I'm also so upset. You know, I'm one of you. And I think it's very possible that he was just a really impressive liar. And... Um, even so much so that Gedalia believed his own good intentions falsely over those of uh, you know, people who said he was up to no good. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes, there are. That's a whole other. That's a whole other question. I mean, the, the sugi in Gemara Rosh Hashanah, near to the source I brought here, discusses under which circumstances the fast days will continue or not. Zechariah himself says that these fast days will one day be time of, of rejoicing, and the question is, has that time of, of real redemption come yet? And Zechariah seems to be of the opinion that not, at least in his time. And we certainly um, um, sort of keep that line even today.